welcome back to Fully Equipped. Jonathan Wall here, joined as always by Andrew Tursky and Chris McCormick. Guys, another week, more gear talk. PGA Tour season is done. Another one starts in a week. <laughs> Never ends around here. Nothing like Never that ending. one week vacation. Yeah, I know. I know. It is enjoy it. It is kind of sad. I I would really, and I get I get the reason why because professional golfers are private contractors and this is their livelihood and they need a place to play and earn a living. I get that. But I, man, I really wish that they would go back to even like, uh, you know, a three month break, just let the game breathe a little bit. Am I crazy to think that a, a break from pro golf would be a good thing? No, you need some time off to miss it as fans. Exactly. Yeah, I would I would say exactly the same thing. You need a little bit of time to miss it to build that when's the season start kind of thing. I would agree. Yeah, it's it, it's funny. I always talk to my friends, and you know, during the dog days of summer when baseball is really the only thing going on, they're always like, I mean, man, if if I ever get bored on a Sunday afternoon, I can always I know I know golf's always there. I can always slip it onto the golf. And it's always like I don't there. I don't like I don't like that. I don't like that it's always there that you can like flip it on. I again I agree. I think that that, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. You you think about how we all feel about at least I should say we, I feel about college football season, pro football too, um, start of the NBA season. There are like certain like the lead up, kind of the anticipation. It's just like you hit the reset button and and you start over and nap again. It's it truly is a traveling circus, but yeah, they'll be back. Napa next week. Somebody will be there, I think. I think I will be in attendance. I think you will be. We got we got we do got some wine there, testing so. while I'm out there or something. There we go. We got we got some video ideas coming, so that'll be fun. Well, the end of the tour season was it actually coincided with the Solheim Cup, which I kind of thought was weird. You know, the, the tour Very likes to kind of have their they, you know, they like to be in the spotlight and they try and end the season before pro football gets going. And here you have the Solheim Cup, which is the the women's version of the Ryder Cup, the biennial matches pitting the U.S. against Europe. And it was going on the same week. It, it, I, I guess some people love it because you've, you've got some drama out at Eastlake, or at least you hope you had some drama out there. And then you've got a lot of drama over... Uh, at Inverness was where they were playing the Solheim Cup. The Europeans were victorious. I, I, you know, I don't know. They just do it better. I'm just going to say it. They, they come together as a team in the Ryder Cup and in the Solheim Cup, and they just kick our ass more often than not. I, that's what it is. It's the that team element. For whatever reason, the U.S. players just don't quite grasp that concept with golf. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't quite understand it. Um, I, I think they tried to do a pod system, which is similar to what the Europeans have done in the past. It did not work out. <laughs> and there was one player on the European team that I wanted to point out, Leona Maguire. She went three zero and one. She was by far the the biggest star, a rookie on the team, and she had an interesting setup that I wanted to point out. She went ping G four twenty five. Three, six, and nine wood. The nine wood was in the bag. Somebody went undefeated with a nine wood. 
You know I had to bring it up. We're we're all about the high lofted fairway woods on this podcast. Before the pod started, Jay Wall was like, I got something for you guys. <laughs> Turns out it was the nine wood. The it was the nine wood. The nine wood was victorious. The nine wood was the star of the show at Inverness. Are you as I'd say, always is. Are you are we even surprised? No, we're not. Because the oh. nine wood is the nine wood is a hero. It's a hero club. How many nine woods did the US team have? Not enough. Yeah, clearly uh, not. Didn't, obviously, didn't obviously have enough nine woods. Enough. Seriously, can you, you, know, every, can you ever have enough? Is the every question. time that I hear about somebody with like a high lofted fairway, I, I'm I'm starting to I, I talk about it all the time on this podcast. I'm really starting to believe that I need a high lofted fairway. We're talking maybe that's the reason, right into it. Maybe that's the reason why I've I've hated three woods. It's just I I can't stand fairways because I've never used them. I've always had a negative experience. Maybe I just need a, a seven wood or a nine wood, and maybe 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 my fortunes change. Yeah. It's really one of those things that like starts as a joke and then it becomes serious. Like I, it is becoming whether serious. It's like a slang me. word or something you say as a joke, and then it's like in your vocabulary now. That's it's, like, it's, oh. it's commonplace that there's a little truth to to every joke. Chris is contemplating it too. I can see it in his eyes. <laughs> I've. I've known for a while a while now that I should probably make that change. There's there's just a, a hesitance, a little little bit of ego there where it's like, man, do I really need to put that 13 wood in play? Probably. But <laughs> just haven't pulled the trigger on it yet. I think Are when we, I start uh... to see uh, a drop in, in pop off the tee, I think I'm going to start looking hard at like a seven wood. Just because, you know, when, when you start losing speed, one of the first things that you're going to start to lose is – is spin and you know high lofted fairway could be a could be a game changer it's a good way to kind of counteract a loss and spin go you know loft up loft up loft up yes bring it back bringing it bring that back loft up it's i was hoping you guys would pick up on that we're we are gear podcast so that was a little bit of a layup i need the hat i need the hat that says loft up i never got one you know what you know what the coolest like I don't know, really know if it was like guerrilla marketing. We talked, we were texting about this this morning. I guess there was like some sort of like a cinnamon toast crunch costume oh, at yeah. a Marlins game. Oh yeah, which is like peak guerrilla marketing. You're just jamming one of those little cinnamon toast crunch guys behind home plate. I mean, oh. you can't miss them. It was CT, awesome. CT, you CT know what's gonna be everywhere. talked about? Cinnamon yeah. toast crunch is going hard right now. They are now that they've got they, the. We talked about them. They didn't even pay us. They call Morikawa, yeah, with with the head covers. So yeah, the uh, the grill marketing. The, the one that I always remember is the yellow bucket hat that Taylor May did at Pebble Beach. Mm-hmm. And they got all the they got all the celebs on seventeen to put on the hat. Yeah, when hitting the shot. I mean, it was genius. Yep. Was that the rocket ballsier? Was that what the yellow was for? Yeah, yeah. It was it was stage two. Okay. Let's just move along from this topic. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to talk about this. Rocket balls here. here. All right. <laughs> I was, yeah. I was yeah. sitting here reminiscing about all of the random ad and marketing campaigns they were running through during RBZ and RBZ Stage Two, and I'm just going. I think I think Stage Two lot. is the one that they they would <clears> like <throat> to forget. Those were some hot three woods, though. Like I yeah. know the everyone kind of rips on for the was... advertising, but. That man, that was that was a that was an interesting time for TaylorMade. Not to not to like go off the rails with like we always. It's do, already off. That was an interesting <laughs> time know. for TaylorMade. Right. Stage two, 
um, that was not not a great time. That was sort of sort of a little bit of the the downfall for TaylorMade at the time. They, that was they right around the they were the changing the of the guard at the top there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was I a mean, lot it, of people it, were it moving did, around. It did shake things up for sure. But Rocket Balls was so good. It's like, you know, of course you're going to try and capitalize on the success of it and come out with a stage two version. But it did it did not work out like they thought it would. But anyway. I did just do a little uh, TaylorMade driver test recently. Yes. From, from drivers we talk about throughout this? the years. Did Which, we talk about this last week or no? Well, we, I think I think we kind of teased it a little bit that you had done some testing. But I don't okay. think we really got into the numbers at all. And and the response that we received to your testing, Turski, man, I think I think you're gonna have People to do more it. of that from some of the other yeah. manufacturers. So basically what I did, I just picked up a bunch of tailor-made drivers from throughout the years. I did already have some because they're all in the back of his trunk. Yeah, I mean <laughs> I only had to buy like one extra club. But <laughs> I did the uh tailor-made strong one from the early eighties. I did an R seven quad. An R9 460, a Slider S, and a Sim 2 Max. And basically, I just hit them. I just hit them on the Foresight GC Quad, posted the numbers. Um, should we talk about the numbers? Or should yeah, I, just I mean, seriously, because that's, that's, that's I think the thing com. that was so, that was, I think was kind of eye opening for some people were the numbers that you posted. And again, it was small sample size here. It was just Tursky hitting it. But, um, I thought the numbers were were a bit eye opening when you went from, you know, some of these some of these drivers from one to the next. Okay, I didn't know we were going to talk about this topic. I, I didn't either. Bring I was. Up I know. Quick. Yeah. If you if you okay. need if you need a minute. <clears throat> nope, got them right here. Right. I'm ready to go. Boom. Okay, so I guess I'll just read through um, each of the five parameters: ball speed, launch, spin, carry distance for each of them. Or is that too yeah. boring? Well, I mean, just just maybe point maybe point out some of the some of the biggest jumps in in I mean the ones that people always care about seem to be the ball speed and the carry. Yeah, I mean, where, ball where speed, did you, where spin, did you carry. See? Yeah, 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 spin too. Well, the uh, the strong one at ten degrees. Uh, this is <laughs> it's like a hundred eighty five cc club head, so small. Um, I thought it was going to go nowhere, but the ball speed was one fifty three point six. And carry 243, total distance 267, spin 2500. I thought, the spin, I thought the spin was going to be like four grand, though. And at 2500, that wasn't too bad, in my opinion. No, it's pretty playable. manageable. It's really good. Then we go to the R7 quad, came out 2004, absolute classic, got the four adjustable weights in the back. I think it was one of the most popular tailor-made drivers ever, right? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Iconic. Yeah. So we jumped up pretty big on ball speed right there. So it was 153.6 with the strong one, R7 quad 160.8. Then carry up to 264, total distance 286. You know, now we're kind of getting into the, the modern drivers right there. You know, pretty big increase right there. Um, spin actually went up, though. 2,600 compared to 2,500 with the strong one. I was surprised by that. What shaft were you playing in that? Not to put you on the spot. Yeah, you're putting me on the spot with that. It's fine. Don't worry about it. I was just curious. That that was the one. That was the one I bought. Um, It was at a second, second hand store. I don't know if I want to give them pub or not. But 
No. Yeah. Not unless they want to sponsor <laughs> the podcast. Yeah, right. But it was an X-Flex, so. Uh, then we had an R9 460. I played that in college, throughout college. So that was like my gamer, super stiff, Aldilla shaft in there. 163.6 ball speed, down to 2200 spin. Carry was actually down from the R7 quad, down two. 262 and then distance was 289 then we got into the slider s my my gamer for about seven years i finally got out of it last year i was playing that for quite some time uh basically no ball speed increase from the r9 460 we had 163.7 but carry went all the way up to 280 and total distance 305 and i think that's that's you know Spin decrease, spin was at 2,000 compared to 2,300 with the R9 460. Um, I guess my ball, I would say it tends to balloon, so low spin is usually a good thing for me. And it's just when you hit the center of the face, it's just really hot, that slider S. When you miss the center of the face, it duck hooks you off call. the absolute planet. It's really <laughs> it's bad. No spin. So she got somebody, a couple of people you mentioned in your story um, that – it was it was one of those clubs. You didn't kind of mention exactly why it was it was a driver that I can't remember what 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 you said. It was something about the the driver kind of being a hot button topic. This the slider, and that was the reason why was because 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 of the weight where that center gravity was located and how how low spin it was. That driver did not work for that driver did not work for a lot of people. Just and, super forward and, CG is the problem. Yep. Yeah, you said it was one of the most polarizing, and I w- I would yeah, totally yeah, yeah. agree with you. Yeah, it was one of the most polarizing for sure because it was a driver that produced low spin, but if you missed the center of the club face like a lot of golfers do, you were struggling big time with that driver because it, it had little in the way of forgiveness. Yeah, I mean, I remember the feedback, the mass feedback was like, this is one of the worst drivers I've ever hit. And then for some people, it was like, no, I don't think you get it. Like, this is by far the best driver they ever made. It's like no one can get on the same page about it because it was so different depending on who was hitting it. Yeah. So then I hit the Sim 2 Max, uh, three mile per hour increase from the Slider S up to 166, carry 286, total 310, spin 2150. Just like pretty optimal, perfect numbers, I would say. Yeah, definitely the most forgiving, good. softest feeling off the off the face. Um, I mean, technology's come a long way in terms of feel optimization, forgiveness, um, and just ball speed off the center of the face. It's so a, a testament quick, to the the tech testing. increases for sure. Oh yeah, just all the new tech and how it benefits the player. And it, like we were kind of talking about, that'd be really interesting to see going through some of the other manufacturers and the evolution of technology and the evolution of their product design and just see side by side, how does something from 20 years ago compared to newest, latest and greatest. And then some of what we consider the, the benchmark clubs from that manufacturer, where do they stack up? Yeah. So I, I, I wasn't sure if this was going to be a one-off test or what, but yeah, it sounds like we're going to have to it's do title as yeah, Callaway ping. Like, yeah, it's going to be yeah. a thing now. Yeah, for sure. Which I don't mind. I like going one. in there. I like going in there and seeing because it's it's you're pretty cool. Be, like hitting the clubs back classics? to back to back. Yeah, I'll be trying classics and 
just like the head shape as you go through the progression of that it's kind of mind-blowing and then the feel too you know you can really feel those older titanium versus the newer like softer carbon influenced designs ping would be an interesting one i would be i'd be really curious like the uh you guys remember the raptor like that driver from ping had a bunch of carbon in it and then they got away from it so i'd be curious like how that driver would stack up to some of the new like 425 product or the 400 product and then going back to some of the g series ping stuff where does that stuff stack up what would you say is the number one driver you know like older say you know 2010 2012 where someone comes in with that driver and you're like uh-oh I'm not going to be able to beat this thing with like a new driver. Oh man. You know, R9. R9's pretty solid. R9, R9 he says. That the R9 it's... got blown out though. It was 20 it was more than 20 yards shorter than the Sim2 Max. Yeah, but spin numbers yeah, I mean, were if... pretty were, were pretty strong. I mean I, I probably I, hit I, the mini driver. I probably hit the new mini driver farther than the R9 460. You, do you know that for a fact, or are you, are you saying you think you would? I didn't have it there, so I didn't test it back-to-back, okay. back, but definitely. Mm. Definitely. I don't think I'm 20 yards shorter with the Mini Driver compared to the Sim2 Max. I mean, if the only reason I say like an R9 or something like that is by that point, if somebody still has in the bag the face on that, you know that thing's not conforming. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole nother how, topic, How are you going to beat that? How are you going to beat, that? Gonna beat that? that? We're not doing that one today. How are you going to beat that? How are you going to be a non-conforming driver head? But the question stands, Chris. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, if you're looking that early 2000 era, even up to 2010 compared to modern tech, I don't think there's a lot out there that's going to gonna stay consistently as long as some of the new stuff that's out there. I mean, since MOI and CT and everything has been maxed out for years, now they've just figured out how to raise that MOI to where you maintain consistency and ball speed on the mishit. So I think if you look at the averages, that new tech is going to win more often than not. I mean, across every manufacturer, everybody's kind of bridged that gap and started to go into movable weight and adjustable this, adjustable that, multi-material construction, and they've just figured out how to maintain that speed on a larger hitting area. So, I mean, drivers from 10 plus years ago, I just don't think... As far as averages go, they're gonna they're gonna be able to keep up. There's some really yeah. good stuff out there, but in the long run, I think the new tech is gonna edge it out. I was thinking it would be closer than it was. Really. Really. I'm always kind of well. I'm always kind of biased towards the old stuff. I'm like, is the old stuff that much worse? Like, I liked playing it. Well, I mean, if if you're going back, if you're going back that far, with with some of these products. I mean, even even like oh four. You know, tech's. I, I feel like I feel like technology has taken a a sharp incline in terms of of what we're seeing from from a lot of these manufacturers. It was like we were seeing a lot of the same designs, and then now it was like, oh, here we go. I, they they found they found new materials. They they yeah. found yep. you know now they've got AI involved in in face designs with some of these manufacturers. You know they went to, I mean some of these drivers are now uh, a large majority carbon fiber, 
you know, they're, they're finding new and inventive ways to, to shift weight around. And it, yeah, it's, I, I do, I do wonder though, how, how much more tech is out there for drivers. I feel like, I feel like of, of the ones we've talked a little bit about this before, I feel like that we're getting closer to that ceiling. I really do. Cause it's, it's, I, know. I mean, the, I feel like people base... have been saying that since like 1985 though. Well, yeah, <laughs> but I, I think, I think when I, when I say that it's more for, for the distance side, I just, yeah. I think the guys are going to get stronger and you know, the more force you're imparting on the golf ball, I mean, if like Bryson's speed, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna gain distance, but I just don't really, I mean, there's not a lot you can do to the face anymore. You can't make it any thinner. I mean, everybody's, everybody's right up against the legal limit. It's, it's tough to really do much in that arena. I think more, it would be more like golf ball. If, if there was some sort of material out there that would be a game changer, who knows, but. Certainly interesting topic. That was a very interesting test, by the way, and, and I'm glad that we're going to continue them on, do Titleist, Callaway, Ping, go th- run through all the major manufacturers, take a take a trip down memory memory lane with some of the some of the drivers that I think we all remember. That'll be fun. Got to do Cobra too. Cobra Got to do Cobra. Well, we'll I want to we'll, the one that we'll keep going until everybody tells us to stop. I'm, I'm Can we do Nike? There. Yes, yes, we need to do Nike. Let's do Nike. Nike? I want to right. see how the old Cleveland comp driver does. Little, little I used to love watch. that thing. Ooh, Cleveland too. That'd be fun. Yeah, the Cleveland, uh, the Cleveland launcher comp. That thing was a beast. Wait, yeah. can we get our hands on the Nike driver that like came out but never came out? Like we got the leaked uh, marketing images. You know what I'm talking about? The the black yeah. and red one. I forget what it was called. I don't know if I don't know if we can or not. We could always try. We gotta if try. Somebody's, if somebody's I would love hands, to test that one. If somebody's gonna get their hands on it, you know it's gonna be us. Let's do it. All right. Okay. So the other, the other thing I wanted to bring up were these twenty-year-old twins that just won on the European Tour in back-to-back weeks. Twenty years old. Identical twins, right? Identical twins from from Denmark. They uh, they win one week. It's uh, Rasmus and Nikolai Hogard. They won in Switzerland and Italy. Twenty years old. I mean, I, I know these pros nowadays are getting younger, and you know, twenty is is not as young as it maybe it used to be. It would have maybe been a bigger deal if a twenty year old won on tour, but still, I, I think it's really impressive. But the craziest thing of all here is they both switched into new Scotty Cameron putters. Were they identical weeks. Scotty Cameron putters? They were not. They were not. I, I did I did confirm. Oh. So so Rasmus wins the first week in Switzerland with a Scotty Cameron special select masterful tour type. And then the following week, his brother Nikolai wins with a T22 fastback 1.5 Proto. Ooh. So not the same putter. But again, it goes back to that story that that when we talked to Nelly Corda and we asked her how much does she look at the gear inside Jessica, her sister's bag? And she's like, you know, yeah, you'll see we we have a lot of the same stuff. And if like one of us changes, there's a pretty good chance that the other's going to change. So I was still trying to find out. We're, we're trying to get in touch with uh, with the Scotty Cameron tour rep over on the European tour. But I was told he might be on holiday right now. 
So we might have to wait for the real story. But I do wonder if, if you know, Nikolai sees Rasmus win the week prior by switching putters, if he's like, hold up. All I got to do is switch putters and maybe I have a chance to win. I'm going to follow, I'm going to follow, you know, my brother and, and do that. But uh, I thought that was kind of funny. Both, both switches got to hear in putters. First time on the European tour that brothers have won in back-to-back weeks, but to do it with Scotty Cameron putter changes, that's, that's kind of a neat wrinkle. Yeah. I mean, you know, the putter's going to work. <laughs> it's like, identical twins man it's not like oh jason day just won with a putter i'm gonna throw in a spider too right no it's my it's my identical twin like i know it's gonna work i don't even have to test it like just give me the give me the putter jay wall did you pull up their stats and look at them side by side like kind of how they they stack up with their player stats i did not did you no but i'm i'm curious now if they're identical did uh if they're identical, did Rasmus really win back-to-back weeks? Do we really know for sure? It was really the same one. <laughs> same brother. We don't know. They're identical. That's like the ultimate motivation, though. It's like your identical twin wins the week oh before. My it's like, I have to yeah. win now. Yeah, yeah I you're, you're I can't deal with twin? this. I can't yes. deal with this for the rest of my life. Yeah. Like, yeah, I better yeah. You'd have the to think there was... rivalry, isn't it? I would love to know yeah. what the odds were on, on Nikolai winning... The week after his brother, somebody somebody oh. had to like think, man. Your brother wins. You, you want you want to end up in the winner's circle too. Somebody, oh, somebody, tough, somebody had to put bet. some money down. Somebody that's had to put some money down. Yeah, I'm sure the odds were very long. But anyway, thought that was a fun one. You know what else is fun? Mailbag questions. Nice mailbag. Me... What do we got? It's you know it's been. We need like a little intro music for mailbag. What was like uh, on 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 ESPN? Where they do like the mailbag <laughs> as they went as they went to it with Kornheiser and Wilbon. They yeah, they yeah, all yeah. they always kind of had their. Uh, I don't know what that was. This is. I feel like that might be like trademark infringement or something if we use that specific one. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe our own our own version. This is really going off the rails, but here I'm trying to stall question, for you here. You got the question, question for quit for Chris. Yeah, I'm, right. I'm, I'm. Thank you for stalling. I was trying to <laughs> grab it here. So yep. here we go. He says I'm a mid handicapper and I'm trying to fit into a new set of irons. All the fitting options in my town only offer turf mats. There's nowhere I can hit off of grass. How much does this, does this impact fitting? Especially considering I'm not a very good player, I feel as though I might be overcomplicating things. So most of the, the true spec studios, actually, I should say most of the, uh, the indoor fitting facilities are obviously going to be off mats. So nothing wrong with fitting off of mats and you will see some variances, uh, from mat to turf. Typically speaking, uh, the majority of the players, when they are hitting off of a artificial turf indoors, they're going to strike it a little higher on the face. Uh, it's going to influence some carry numbers, going to influence some spin numbers. Launch might be influenced a little bit, but you can get a very good quality fitting indoors. And for the higher handicap player, don't overthink it. You can still get a great, great quality fitting and a good set of irons 
And I mean, the, the quality of the fitter also comes into play too. They'll be able to help you answer some of those questions based upon the angles you create. Is the turf interaction with this particular club still going to be appropriate based upon the angles that you create, even though you don't have that turf interaction in an indoor environment. So you should be able to be test the, the dynamic lie that you have coming through impact also kind of dialing in those launch parameters in an indoor environment. And the good news is more often than not, you can test the actual golf ball that you play during an indoor fit. So you get a lot of good quality uh, parameters in indoors, uh, being that the environment never changes. You always have a perfect flat level lie. You don't fatigue as quick because it's climate controlled most of the time. And you get to test a variety of different products and also isolate products. So you can test heads and shafts independently and in a more controlled environment. I like the indoor iron fitting. It's uh, yeah, nothing wrong with it in my opinion. Jay Wall, remember when I did that Matt's versus grass test? Yeah. I sent you those numbers, right? There was like yeah. no difference. I thought the launch and spin was going to be way different. I think it probably depends on the quality of the mat that you're using. It depends you know on the mean? player it, too. It, yeah. Well, for sure, the player too. I think I was using the mats at Cracker Jacks. It wasn't. It wasn't high quality. <laughs> no offense, Cracker Jacks. I love that. Place. No, yeah, no, no offense, Cracker Jacks. Yeah, I, I, I do, I do agree with Chris. Jacks. It probably depends on on the player. Maybe. I mean, if you're does, when you say depending on the player, I'm thinking more about like how you impact the golf ball, Chris. For sure. Yeah, yeah if you're. I mean, if you're somebody that's really steep versus somebody that's kind of a, a picker or sweeper, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, turf interaction is going to be kind of a, a variable that's player dependent. Yeah. Second uh, question, forgot to mention that that last question came from Connor Lavoff. Connor, thanks for the question, man. Second question comes from the golf club guru who wanted to know, we did some MG3 testing. And they were curious. I, I did pick up some some decent spin numbers, particularly on that kind of that twenty and, and forty yard shots. And they wanted to huge. know if I know huge if they wanted to know increase. the mic the micro ribs on that that are situated between the grooves, if they're going to destroy the golf ball covers. Um, valid question because I mean, I didn't notice a ton of spin. So so very for people that maybe didn't see it. On golf.com, I did a test from 20 and 40 yards because TaylorMade had claimed that their new micro ribs, which are these raised ribs that you can you can see if you look closely, they're situated between the grooves. They're meant to add some additional friction to the face and, and increase spin, particularly 40 yards and in. So around the green shots, that's great for a tour pro in particular because they're always looking for a little bit of extra drop and stop on those firmer greens. So 20 yards was, you know, 150 to 200 yard or 200 RPMs, pretty, pretty standard, but it was like up to 350 from 40. And I was not, I was not adding extra sauce as I, as I mentioned in the story, cause that usually will juice the numbers, but yeah, like 350 is, uh, is not what I was expecting. That's, that's almost double the, the high end of what they were claiming. So Yes, there's more spin, but I did not see I did not see the golf ball fraying at all on those shots, and and I hit plenty of balls even after the test because, like the club guru guru was asking, you you got to know because golf balls nowadays are are not cheap unless you're playing 
you know, Kirkland balls. So can I ask a can I ask a dumb question? There are no dumb questions on this show. So so say you rip up your golf ball and it starts fraying and the cover's all messed up from the grooves. Does that matter? Is that going to affect performance at all, or is it really just like a visual thing? It is going to affect performance. It can, yeah, for sure. Yeah, any anytime you're you're modifying the surface, it's it's going to impact uh, performance in some degree or another. So whether that be, I mean, you just think about aerodynamics of it. So if you're manipulating that dimple pattern and now you're creating a, a different surface, it's going to fly differently. Potentially, could roll differently once it hits the turf. It's, I mean, yeah, it's it's going to impact performance some degree or another, whether it be minute or drastic. So it's funny you bring this up because there was the, I think it was back in like 2019, there was the pro who played all 72 holes in a McKenzie tour event with the same titles pro B one X. And it kind of like opened up this, how long can you play a golf ball? And Titleist said that like the normal rule of thumb for, for golf balls is as long as there isn't paint loss or like a major scuff, um, even if it's just like little bits of like wear that occur just from, you know, your, the grooves on your wedge, you should be good to go. But if it starts, if you're starting to notice that like, again, a, a major scuff being like if your ball kisses the car path with a drive, you know, those are the ones you're probably going to want to pull it out of play. But if it's just normal wear and tear and you're hitting fairways and greens and not really noticing any difference in performance, you can keep playing it for as long as you want. It's just, it's the major stuff that's going to be the the biggest issue for, you know, spin and launch. I feel like if I'm just going out and playing around the golf, like it's <clears> a <throat> serious competition, it's going to take some serious scuffing for me to like take it out of play. Sure. Like I'm probably playing with that ball until I'm losing it. Honestly, I think we've all done that. Oh, for sure. I mean, I have. It's I've kind of used it as like a born as a badge of honor. If I've got the same, I mean, I think I remember yeah. back in like high school, I remember playing the the same ball for at least two rounds, and I'm like, man, I'm just gonna keep using this thing. It's it's kind of like beat to crap by now, but hey, it's it's still here, so it's got some good juju on it. Yeah, it's hasn't, hanging hasn't around for some reason. Yet. Yeah, it hasn't yeah. gone in the woods. Me and yet. him are tight now. Yeah, That's yeah, it for sure. There's a history. So yeah, so the, the the grooves on it no, I I didn't notice that they were they were too aggressive to the point where they're going to start shearing the the face on the golf ball. But I do like to point that out when when it does get to be a bit more aggressive because nowadays the grooves on a lot of wedges they are you know they are again they are aggressive. So anyway, I think with that, let's get to this week's interview. We've had this one let's bang go. for a little while. I know. Let's go. We had a chance to talk to three-time NBA champion, former Chicago Bull, 15-year NBA vet. We can keep going here. Scott Williams. Scott was awesome. Tursky and I had a chance to chat with him. I think we probably spent about 70% of the time, maybe 75%, talking his time in the NBA. MJ, he has some great MJ stories, including how he acquired a set of golf clubs that used to belong to MJ. MJ being the goat, Michael Jordan. Um, it was airness. a really, it was a really fun interview. Scott's a member at some unbelievable clubs and he's a golf nut. It was fun to have him on. We had a great chat. Enjoy it. Before we get to our interview this week with Scott Williams, we want to remind you this episode is brought to you by globalgolf.com. 
your online destination for the best selection of new and pre-owned clubs, tech, apparel, bags, shoes, and more. Their industry-leading Try, Trade, and Buy program will help you play your best for less. Test equipment, range finders, and GPS units for up to two weeks with Global Golf's U-Try program. Take advantage of their proprietary trade-in and get top dollar for your equipment. Higher trade-in values means more cash to upgrade, plus save 10% on qualifying products with promo code GOLF10. That's G-O-L-F-T-E-N. Try, trade, and buy only at globalgolf.com. Promo code GOLF10. All right, Tursky. You know, we've done a bunch of interviews on this podcast, but I'm not going to lie. This is by far the one that I've gotten the most excited about. I'm you so know, jacked up right now. I, I, I am. I, like, look, we're, we're both children of the 90s. We grew up Bulls fans. Uh, Last Dance, I was enthralled watching it on television, kind of reliving those days as a kid. We have somebody who actually was there. Three-time NBA champion who's joining us on the podcast. So we've actually got a McDonald's All-American, three-time NBA champion who also had a 15-year career in the league. He's also a golf nut. This, this is going to be an awesome interview. Scott Williams, what's going on, man? Let's go. What's going on, fellas? I'm so excited. This is, uh, this is like for a, for a basketball uh, ex-player, former player. I like to call myself a legend sometimes. But uh, <laughs> to be on a golf show is like a dream come true for me because I am a, oh, God, a, a lifetime hack. Uh, but I enjoy the game so much. It just is it has given me so many ways to be able to connect with friends and family and uh, travel around not only the United States, but the world to play some of the most beautiful courses, uh, scenery, spiritual. I, I just love the game. I wish I was better. <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't we I don't all get a chance to practice as much as I did when I first retired, but uh, I sure enjoy it. And thank you very much for having me on. Yeah. So I, I got to show you something before we get going, Scott. I, I was digging around through my Bulls memorabilia and I happened upon a photo. Look at that. Look at that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love there, it. I love there's it. You bang, there's you banging in the low post with MJ. I see Sam Perkins. I see Sean Kemp. The glove. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Those, those were those um, Supersonics teams going out to when we had to go out to Seattle, which was one of my favorite places to play stops around the league. I get off and ask what was my, you know, top cities to play basketball and, and playing up there in the Pacific Northwest West with all the beauty. And then those Sonics fans would just feel that little arena. It was kind of like in a neighborhood and uh, they were rabid. I mean, it was a tough place to go in and get a win. And that's one thing I think that, well, MJ and the rest of us prided ourselves on the fact that, when we went on the road, everybody was waiting to see us. And especially when we went out West, because uh, we only went once a year. And they seemed like they had that, you know, the PA system cranked to 10. The fans were coming at unglued. Um, and we really had to band together, not fracture if things started off slowly and stay together to try to get the win. It's probably some of the, my best memories of being with my teammates uh, being on the road and really having to come together. Phil Jackson used to say, Big Chief Triangle used to say, you know, we'd have to form a sacred hoop around our around our team. And we don't let any distractions outside of that sacred hoop bother us. And that's what it was like playing on the road. Uh, we really had to stay focused and stay together and stay committed. 
And generally, more times than not, we came out on the top. Did you ever get dunked on by Sean Kemp? <laughs> well, one thing I always would tell some of these young guys when they're when they're coming up and they're playing, you, you play long enough, you know, you're going to get dunked on by somebody, uh, and you hope that <laughs> you hope that those those uh, don't come as often as you actually return the favor on the other end. I was never a leaper, but uh, I was sneaky quick off the ground sometimes and I could catch a few people sleeping. But yeah, Sean Kemp was one of those guys that uh, if he had a head of steam coming, you, you might want to make a business decision and go ahead and just think about taking the ball out of bounds after he finished what after he finished doing what he needed to do. <laughs> right. He was vicious too. He'd point right in your face after he dunked on you. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you should bring up that photo of Sean Kemp because just the other day I was walking by the mirror, I was coming out of the shower, and I was like, boy, I look like Kemp post-lockout back in 1998, <laughs> you know? It's like, I got to get out of diet, man. I got to get those athletic greens going or the liver belly pills or something. I got to start working out. But, uh, oh, yeah, you're man. right. When, when Kemp was in his heyday, the rain man couldn't be stopped. So, you know, rookies coming into the league, you know, it, you're trying to kind of find your footing. You you come into the league, and you get thrust in the middle of this Bulls team that was that was on the rise. What was it like to be a rookie joining that team? It, it was crazy um, because you know I wasn't drafted. Coming out of North Carolina, I had a bad uh, shoulder injury, and it would kind of uh, dislocate, sublex, and so it scared a lot of teams off. And I had to try out for the Bulls. I went out to summer camp in Los Angeles, Loyola, Marymount, survived that round of cuts. Then got to veterans camp. They had one spot left open. There were seven guys trying out. I survived that round of cuts. And training camp was something that I thought I was prepared for. And I, I always had a, a very high um, work ethic. But Jordan was on a mission. He was like a man possessed. He had never won the championship. He had been beaten by the pits and knocks down like, I think, three previous years in the Eastern Conference Finals. Um, and everyone had told him he's a scorer. He's nothing more. He'll never be, win an NBA championship. And he was like a smoldering beast in training camp. We practiced hard and physical, three-hour practices twice a day for a solid week. And I'd never been through such intensity before in my entire life. Your entire time, you're, you're your skin's crawling, your hair's standing up, you know, people are barking orders, you're trying to learn new terminology and being a rookie coming into that triangle offense, there's so many variations of things that can happen. It looks like it's just a triangle, you pass to the top and you make a split cut, but you're reading and reacting on the defense. There's like 64 different options. And, you know, I'm going home back to the, the hotel room, rather you know, dog tired, trying to concentrate, writing things down trying to stay sharp so I'd have an edge over the other guys trying out for the you know those positions so it was just a real hectic time and lo and behold we come out of the gate to start the season and we drop our first three games of the year <laughs> it, was, it was like oh my god so if things were hard that first week in training camp they even ratcheted up even more as NJ was just out of his mind beside himself we finally caught our groove and we went on to have a nice year. Obviously we had 61 wins, won the top seed in the East, had the best record in the league. And that served us well throughout the playoffs against the Pistons. But uh, you know, we, we ended up sweeping, but that first year as a rookie, you know, I had rookie duty, Scotty Pippen and Horace Grant were on my case all the time to rack the balls and, and vacuum up the training facility and clean the locker room and, you know, want to be running donuts and, 
tried to get me to wash the cars. I drew the line at that. I'm like, I'm not washing cars in Chicago in the middle of winter. Y'all keep that, you know, BS to find some other monkey to do that work. But, uh, you know, getting the ball bags off the airplane when we landed on the road in Cleveland at one o'clock in the morning, you know, when your hands are frozen, it, it was tough. But I, you know, I stuck it out. I think my teammates understood, you know, that I was the only rookie. Um, and I was trying to do the best that I could and learn the system, fit in and be part of the squad and be, and be part of something that they were building that was quite special. And thank goodness, you know, maybe good Lord above or MJ looking out for me. What, one of the two, I was able to stick and uh, it was a special, special year. And we won the championship against my Los Angeles Lakers. Well, I grew up in Los Angeles being a Laker fan, idolizing guys like Michael Jordan and James Worthy and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Jamal Wilkes and Byron Scott and Norm Nixon. So I was in heaven playing in the forum against those guys. And, you know, that that was that was the you know, I cried after after that championship, like I had gone through so much ups and downs and highs and lows over the course of that season that ended in the championship in Los Angeles was just so sweet. Going to UNC, did you have like that immediate connection with Jordan or were you kind of just the rookie? No, it was Carolina family for sure. Uh, MJ is a huge Carolina basketball guy. I'm sure you've seen the pictures of him wearing his Carolina shorts up underneath his jersey. All that's true. I had my locker right next to his uh, at Chicago Stadium. I thought, oh my God, this is going to be great. A blessing, you know, right next to Michael Jordan. I hope some of that talent will seep through the walls and rub off onto me, you know, like, uh, this is going to be great. Well, I found out nobody wanted that locker after the first game because the press would surround him so bad. The locker was so tiny. You couldn't even get to your little stall there to get your underwear on after the games that people were trying to stick microphones across your face and everything just to get a soundbite for Michael Jordan, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was a wonderful experience, but, um, funny story is, uh, after not being drafted, I played in a pickup game in Greensboro with Jordan put on for a bunch of kids that were kind of underprivileged uh, that got camped for free. It's kind of what they raised money called the greatest pickup game in the world. Fred Whitfield, his buddy owned it, uh, ran it. And uh, I played on Jordan's team. And I think I impressed him just enough that he made a call to Jerry Krause in Chicago and said, hey, give Williams a look-see. So wow. I do know a lot to Jerry of Krause. how wow. I end up getting to Chicago to Michael Jordan for making that call to Krause uh, right after the game, leaving the arena. But I almost screwed it up because my agent got me a, uh, an invitation to go down to Charlotte before I end up going to Chicago. But Charlotte fails me on my physical because of my shoulder. I was like, duh, that's the reason why I wasn't drafted. I grab a ticket that afternoon, fly to Chicago, and they give me an opportunity there. So I almost messed it up, but thankfully it worked out. Oh what was gosh. it like uh, going from Dean Smith to Phil Jackson? Like, oh, man. how are their I, coaching styles different? I tell you what, you know, um, I lost my parents when I was in school. So um, Coach Smith was like my father figure. You know, he, he was there for me in ways probably above and beyond what he was for all of his um players in fact you know i don't know if you heard the story about after he passed he left everybody a check for 200 bucks to go out and have dinner on him kind of an appreciation for what we did well he did so much more for all of us than we ever did for him i still have that it's one of my most prized memorabilia from playing sports is having the letter and that check and a frame from coach smith i said i'll never <laughs> i'll never catch that in fact i held on to it for so long 
the accountant called me and Scott said, Scott, are you going to cash that check or what? We're trying to reconcile the book. I said, no, go ahead, take that one off the book. I'm keeping this check. Um, but anyway, uh, he, he was he was wonderful. Uh, he cared more about us becoming good men uh, than he did about winning a basketball game. And he was competitive as anybody had ever seen. I uh, watched a lot of film. We, we understood um, basketball from us from a IQ standpoint, not just from a running play standpoint. I mean, our basketball IQ, I think for Carolina guys is, is higher than most uh, universities when we leave school. He didn't just roll the balls out there with some athletic players that were McDonald's All-American. He teaches you the game in film session and breaks it down, sometimes a little more than we wanted. <laughs> but uh, we all we all learned, you know, uh, you know, having a thought for the day, not just a defensive emphasis and an offensive emphasis, trying to make us more well-rounded people like, it could be something from, you know, Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. or Babe uh, Ruth. It was just all these different sports personalities, political types, social activists. Um, it was all about developing us and our mindset so we could tackle whatever we put our minds to after we left basketball, because it didn't matter if you played in the NBA, if you went on to get your master's degree or, you know, you, you or your time was up and you just got a job as an accountant. He always wanted us thinking about a bigger picture so, and thinking more than just ourselves and about our, uh, our, our communities that we were going to uh, go thrive in. So that's what I loved about him. When I go to Phil Jackson, you know, being the only rookie, SHIT rolls downhill. So it was a little, a little bit tougher situation because all of a sudden, you know, not treating guys one through 15, the same, you know, you got Jordan and the vets up here on this level and the rookie and the rookies, you know, the rookies down here over here and I'm catching a lot of flack. I'm like, dude, I played four minutes last night. Why are you yelling at me the next day in practice? Because Something went wrong, you know, like go get on these other cats. But it took me a while to, to kind of, understand where Phil was coming from and you gotta I have to remember and, and why I tell people he wasn't Phil Jackson with the 11 championship rings you know he was Phil Jackson searching for his first ring still only in his second year as a head coach still trying to figure out what worked and what didn't work so it was a different time back then I thought I just kept my head down and continued to work and got more and more playing time uh and as I got further in the league and further away from Phil and further away from Chicago, the one thing that I realized what I had so special was he was the master of getting the most out of someone's talents, putting them in positions to get the most out of their talents while making sure he didn't put you in a position to, to maximize your weaknesses. So that is just as important as using someone's strengths as making sure you, they, you don't make them feel uncomfortable on the floor where all of a sudden things that they're not good at, it's a liability for them and the team. And that was the greatest thing about Phil Jackson because I didn't have that in other places sometimes. You know, they stick you out there, ISO, you play three-man basketball over here and the shot goes up. They want you to go run in from 25 feet to go get the rebound. You're like, that's not my game. You know, I'm, they call me tank. I'm supposed to be down there under the paint to start the play. I'm supposed to be knocking people around. You know, this is this is not going to do it for me. So my time in Philadelphia didn't work out real well uh, when I got there. But, you know, at, that's the things that you you realize that you don't think you think, you know, everything coming to the league because, you know, you learn from um, Dean Smith. But then you start to understand the pro game a little bit better and realize there's not always going to be situations where 
people treat you the way that you need to be treated to be successful. And that's part of being a pro too, trying to manage yourself through those, through those scenarios. And I was lucky that I had vets like Bill Cartwright, like John Paxson, like Michael Jordan that taught me how to be a pro. There's one thing to play professional basketball. There's another thing to be a professional. And um, I got a good, a good dose of that early on. You know, one of the things that, that got me through the peak of the pandemic, and I feel like probably a lot of people was the last dance, Uh, you know, it was for those, for those that haven't seen it, it was a documentary on not just Jordan's time with the bulls, but, but just those incredible bulls teams that, that he was a part of in, in a lot of the major players, you know, they, they did stuff on Phil, on Scotty, on Dennis. Um, it was, it was just really cool to kind of see their personalities and kind of get a little bit of behind the scenes. But I'm curious, I've, I'm sure you've seen The Last Dance. You were in the trenches. You were there. How, what did you think of it? Was it an accurate depiction of those teams? Well, I'm glad you brought up The Last Dance because I loved it. And you're right. There was some, those early days of the pandemic in 2020 when everything was locked down. We had no sports. I mean... Sundays. I I look forward all week to Sunday, you know, to be able to sit down and watch the last dance, not just because it was, you know, they flashed back to the first repeat, which I call the first dance because I think that was tougher (laughs) trying to get it done the first time. Uh, Not Those teams weren't special, but I like the fact that they flashed back to 91 and back to his UNC days and all the subplot stories with Pippen in 94 trying to win a championship while Jordan was shagging fly balls. You know, that was, that was special to me because, and I'm a little, pissed because he didn't interview me i'm like i'm a pretty good interview mj i was about to say i love to talk put a camera in my face i give you a good sound bite i didn't make the cut but anyway um i look forward to it i planned my meals around okay i'm gonna get maggiano's i'm gonna get a little pinot noir you know i I had it all set up i was ready to go for those two hours uh every sunday uh it was great now what happened with some of those teams with Rodman going off to Vegas and some of the access that the camera crew was able to get um, behind the scenes on the planes, in the locker rooms, on the road, you know, in 91, 92, 93, that would have been unheard of. So, you know, NBA TV had so much more access the second time around. They got so much more footage than they were able to provide from 91, 92 and 93 championships. It was great to see that stuff. I had heard some things. I still kind of had a place in Chicago and a mayor in Chicago girl. So I was kind of around the city when all that was going on, but you weren't in that inner circle. So I didn't know some of these subplot stories. I knew Pippen wasn't, un- was unhappy with his contract. Uh, you know, that little things like that, but they brought out so many things. Um, it was, it was good to watch, but it was also tough to watch. You see some of those guys talk about Jordan and how, you know, how hard he was and that they were afraid of him. I, you know, I, I don't quite understand that because MJ was hard to play for if you were just about the NBA lifestyle. Like if you just wanted, if you just wanted the money or the cars or the fame or the girls, yeah, you weren't going, you weren't going to make it with, with him. He didn't, he didn't play that. But if you were there to work and put in that work and all about winning and being part of a team and building something that was going to be special, you had no problems with MJ. And that was the side of him that I saw. Like I was a rookie. I had a chip on my shoulder, the side of a cinder block anyway. So I was ready to come in and work. I had to, to survive in the league. I was on non-guaranteed contracts. You know, I practice on a Monday. They cut me on a Tuesday. So I was always ready to go, you know, focused, locked in, this kind of thing. 
So I never had an issue with him. You know, he told me first time I missed him on a cut, he's like, you missed me on that cut. I was like, what are you supposed to do? I'm like, I'm supposed to hit you. I'm like, okay, I'll hit. You know, the, the star tells you, like, I got to hit him. Like, I'm going to hit Joe Dumars coming through there. So easy, right? That's that's an easy lesson to learn. You know, that's one of my my things. I, I used to play a lot of one-on-one with MJ after practice. It made me a better player. Playing with that guy made me a better player. And there was a side, like, I knew so, nobody in, in Chicago. I lost my parents in school outside of my teammates. I, after the practices were done, I'd go back to my little apartment in Wheeling, Illinois, and wait for them to roll the sidewalks up and wait for practice the next day. It was MJ that would be the guy that would call me and say, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, nothing. He'd be like, okay, come on over, Juanita's cooking a, you know, some spaghetti. We're going to watch you know, you know, some, a, a game out west on, on TNT or something. Like, That's awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm there. You're going to go over to MJ's house, play some pool. Have some spaghetti while eat is cooking, you know, uh, you know, have a couple pops. That was that was great for me. I, that made me feel so welcome and part of the club. That was like a bonding thing. I think some of the guys in that last dance maybe missed out on some of some of those things that MJ tried to do. Come up on the front of the plane and play cards with the guys who were playing, you know, five and ten dollar blackjack when they were playing, you know, for big money in the back, you know, just to try to make sure he was part of whatever thing what was going on. Those are the stories that I remember from those special times with the Bulls, not some of the, well, he was just mean and nasty and punched guys in the nose, you know, but they got into a fight. I, I don't, I didn't see all that. I saw a different dude that was focused to win. Uh, and I think that came out in the documentary, but I think some of the other things, like I just mentioned, didn't come out in the documentary and what he did to try to make sure that guys felt welcome and part of the squad. I think for sports fans playing one-on-one with Michael Jordan and playing pool with him is probably like, at the very, very top of all our bucket lists. What, I like, what was that like? Fortunate. I mean, outside outside of his brothers, I think that 91-92 season, being a Carolina guy, he would always grab me to play one-on-one with, you know, to come over to his house and, you know, like Tim Grover over there, just doing his weightlifting and uh, shooting pool and, uh, you know, Modder Shaw would be playing cards. And it was just, it was surreal. Like, here I am. We're like the Beatles of the NBA. We're like rock stars every time we go someplace. And, you know, I'm part of something. At the time, I didn't realize exactly how big it was going to be, you know, when they'd be doing a 10-part documentary documentary later down the road. But uh, I knew it was special. Uh, and, you know, I was that guy that was soaking it all in. You know, I had the camcorder getting off the airplane after winning the championship, which I lost that tape, unfortunately. But I enjoyed the ride. Uh, not only with those Bulls days, but my entire 15-year career. You played with the uh, 76ers after as well. Were you on the team with AI? Yeah, I, I was there when AI was uh, came in as a rookie. Um, you were there when he crossed him I'll up? I'll never forget the game when we played the Bulls, and MJ was kind of freshly freshly back in the league, and AI put a two-piece and a biscuit move on him <laughs> that uh, sent shockwaves <laughs> through the NBA landscape. It was pretty cool. I was just like, Whoa! The moxie of this kid, I knew he had something special uh, when he looked the, the goat straight in the eyes and didn't blink. I, I got to ask you about one game in particular from your time with the Bulls that sticks out. And I know you saw Jordan have some incredible moments, but what was it like to witness the shrug game in the 92 <laughs> NBA Finals? I mean, Jordan goes for 35 in the first half, six threes. We all know the, fam- the famous shrug as he's going back. <laughs> What, what was it like to, to like bear witness to something like that? It, it was amazing. Um, you know, 
you're on the floor and you're trying to concentrate on your job. You're trying to set the screens and get the rebounds and get in position to fight for offensive boards. And he's hitting everything. <laughs> you're like, wow. I, you almost, at some point, I think I just went, I'm just kind of like a fan. Just watch. I'm on the court, you know, I'm running up and down the floor. I'm banging with Buck Williams and Duckworth and, and trying to stop Clyde Drexler and everything else. But you're like, this dude is doing something I have never seen before in the it's got to be the greatest half of basketball in the NBA Finals oh, sure. to start a series ever. I've watched that game a couple of times after since the last dance, reliving some of those glory years. And, you know, I want to talk about the six for six that I get, the 12 points and, you know, eight boards that I had in that game. But uh, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about it now. Pretty high at the time. I was quite, uh, quite overshadowed by MJ. Uh, but I always like to say, you know, the Tar Heels combined for 41 points in that first half. So I love it. I got that. I love, I love that. Point my head on but it was it was wonderful you know just everything that he that he threw up and, and he didn't shoot a lot of threes our team didn't shoot a lot of threes back then I mean not like today hell they might shoot 25 threes and a half nowadays I mean, you know you I played a game against Larry Bird and the Celtics uh my rookie year and there wasn't a, sh- a three shot for either team not sh- not I'm talking about maybe I'm talking about shot so it wow. was a different era of basketball uh, back then. So game. when he launches those six threes, to, you know, knocks in six threes and sets a, that was a record for a game at the time, not just a half, it was a record for a game, six threes made in an NBA final game. So it was, it was special. It was surreal. Um, all those, you know, the, the, the layup the, the year before where he takes it up one end and Sam Perkins comes over and then he brings it around the other way. Uh, I still remember Scotty Pippen throwing it off the back of Ames and stepping in bounds and dunking it, you know, in the fourth quarter when we were down or up like two points. It was just all kinds of magical moments come flooding back to you and watch how to find these old games on YouTube. I wish I had some better copies and NBA would send us some better copies. Some of them I have to listen to and, you know, Chinese or something, but it's still, you know, you, you just go back and it just puts you in a time and place and Chicago stadium is rocking and, uh, it was, you know, built in the 20s, so the acoustics are horrible, and you can just feel the vibrations of the noise in your body. It's just a bizarre experience, and it's kind of hard to explain that to some people like to go to a concert or whatever. Oh, it's so loud in there, but when you're on the floor and everybody's around you and all that energy is directed towards you, it just makes your insides move. It's a weird experience. It's hard, kind of hard to explain to somebody that's never been there, but... Um, it's hard to recreate that after you get out of basketball and find <laughs> that kind of adrenaline pump. I always said you know, the birth of my two children was, was special, but God, I don't know. If it was. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I'm kind of war with my soon to be 20 year old right now, trying to get him going like, come on, you know, like, <laughs> but uh, it, it was a special time for sure. How serious was that rivalry with uh, Detroit? How was it like going in that building and, you know what was serious kind of the, a the heart attack. Your locker room it's say no so. cap. It was uh, it was it, it was intense as everything. I I mean that was our that was our whole focus in '91. I mean I remember the the team meeting before the first night of practice and Jerry Krause and Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan all stood up and talked and talked about how important it was to have the best record in the Eastern Conference so they could have home court advantage against the Pistons, knowing they were going to face them in the Eastern Conference final because they did not think. They could beat him in Auburn Hills. The Palace at Auburn Hills had just built this monstrosity of arena, and I could hold 20,000 people or damn near close to it. Uh, and they just didn't figure they could win a game of seven uh, if it came down to it. 
in Detroit, and they had to have host Game Seven against the Pistons. So our entire focus in '91 was was beating the bad boys. I mean, that was it. I I think we split with them during the regular season. Um, I don't remember how the games went, but when we when we got to the playoffs, we had really hit in our stride. We really had our confidence, uh, and we knew we were the better team at that point. And I think that that's what it takes. I tell people, like, I played against my older brother who was a star basketball player. He's three years older than me. They wouldn't have my height. And when I started catching up to him on, on height and skill, um, I had never beaten him. Uh, and even when I was probably a little bit better than him, there was still another year, maybe a year and a half, that he still had the psychological edge over me. Uh, and I think that's what the Pistons had the year before over the Bulls. I think the Bulls were better team but I think they had the psychological edge. They had a little bit more know-how too, because they had been there before. Uh, and that's, it's a big part of it. But psychologically, I think they had the advantage. So when the first time I beat my brother after the game, I said, you'll never beat me again. It was, it was just getting over that mental block. And I think that's exactly what it was for those Bulls teams. We beat them the first two games at home soundly. When we went to Detroit, it was lights out. I mean, the games were closer, but we knew that they weren't the better team and we could handle them and we ended up sweeping them. In fact, they, I don't know if you saw in the last dance before the final, I think 11 seconds of the game was even over instead of like congratulating us and shaking our hands, they walked off the floor, didn't even right. say, you know, good yeah. game, congratulations, nothing. And left us a little stunned and bewildered. But I remember MJ coming back to the locker room and said, you know, there's nothing worse than a, M effort, I can't take a, you know, uh, a beating like a man. And, and we all just kind of laughed and we celebrated like we had won the championship, but we knew we still had some work to do. But I want to say that's one of the reasons why we lost the first game of the finals, because they were so focused on just getting past the Pistons that we weren't ready to start against the Lakers. And the Lakers had just won the championship a couple of years before that. So they, they had a little know-how and uh, they surprised us in that first game of the NBA finals because we were so giddy about what we had done against the Pistons. So we could talk Bulls and basketball on this episode, probably for another couple hours. We'd keep peppering you, but I want to talk about what's in what the, what's behind you, that golf bag, Michael Jordan, Wilson. So you you were kind enough to reach out to us on social media, and you sent a photo along of MJ's golf clubs, and you've had these in your possession since your time with the Bulls. I got I got to know the backstory here. How well, how did how did this happen? Tell, yeah, I, I I I always like to tell people, yeah, I, you know, I, I won them off Jim MJ on the golf course, but boy, he's so much better than me that nobody would ever believe that. Um, so I, I I I to tell the truth, one day after practice, uh, MJ grabbed a bunch of us and said, "Listen, guys, I have so much golf equipment in my garage." because the manufacturers in the golf world, I guess, universe, uh, had found out MJ was getting into golf and he was the biggest pitch man on the planet. So to get anything in his hands for free, to hope that they could get a photo or somebody would see him, you know, using their ball or clubs or irons or whatever uh, was huge. So they were sending him. And when I say he had a lot of stuff, it was, it was unfortunate. For a young guy like me at the time, it was my second or third year in the league. I was going to get that little fuzzy, but it was um, it was like walking into a golf warehouse. There was stuff <laughs> everywhere: you know, bags, shoes, uh, balls, head covers. It was unbelievable. So he just started handing 
guys, you know, bags and, and irons and, and drivers and fairway woods and all this stuff. And he gave me this bag with his name on it. And I went, Ooh, I like that. You know, it has the, I don't know if you can, I don't know if you can really, it's showing up good here. You can see where it says Michael Jordan here. And then uh, Wilson's the manufacturer. I don't even know if Wilson still makes. Oh yeah. Uh, they're still in business. They're still in, okay. So Wilson so made wrong. the bag. And then the clubs, which the best part of the whole thing. So they're, um, if I can put them on, uh, tell me if I'm getting this accurate. Oh, yeah. I tried to put the number 20. Ooh, the 20 iron. Three, the three iron is worn down. Guys. So I think he used the three iron more than he hit the two iron because the two so iron the deuce is looks brand so new. damn hard to hit. Um, but they have the little Jumpman logo on, on the bottom of them that are emblazoned in the bottom. No uh, way. Jumpman <laughs> logo with them, with, them, with them going through the through the air there. And oh, they yeah. Have, oh, they have right his the name engraved um, on the, uh, what do you remember? This part is a hosel, I guess. Yeah, the hosel. Yeah. The hosel there, uh, which is fantastic. And the reason why I never really played with them, I don't think I played one round with him with them, is because the grips. The grips are like a jumbo grip with eight wraps on them. And I have big, you know, big hands. You got huge hands. And even I, when I played a little high school golf, and I know when you pull it back, you've got to get that club face closed. Well, the grips were too darn big for me to, to spin them around to get the club face closed in time. So I sliced everything with them. So I, I was like, okay, I, if I'm going to get better at golf, I got to get custom fit for my own clubs. So I end up putting these in a uh, warehouse, uh, a wardrobe box with some sweaters or something like that from Chicago, and they sat in there forever in this box because I knew there were some old sweaters in the box, but I had forgotten I had stuck the golf clubs in there, in there too. So they've been sitting in there forever, and when I saw the bag, I said, "Oh no!" Because these storage facilities I have are just like you know these U-Haul storage facilities. And they're not um, uh, climate controlled. Some of them over the years haven't been climate controlled. I've lived in Phoenix for 20 years. I'm like, oh my God, the, the bag's going to be ruined. The clothes are, you know, the, the grips are going to be dry rot. Um, but they're still in really good shape. Uh, so I, I thought, you know, I'd pull them out one day and, and put them on social media. And that's where you guys picked up on it and, and uh, showed them. Because like I said, I was never much into uh getting sports memorabilia from the guys i played with i wish i had gotten you know larry bird's jersey or mj's shoes or magic johnson's you know whatever knee braces or something <laughs> as collector items because i see on uh some of these social media sites that they go for bucks five hundred thousand dollars <laughs> for a pair of mj's game worn shoes and i don't know how many times with my locker next to him i see him take off a pair of shoes and throw them in the trash you know, at oh, halftime, no. at halftime, because he had a bad oh. shooting nap, he would change his shoes. And instead of just going in there and just, you know, I'll just put those over here, you know, <laughs> and hold on to them for 30 years, you know, I think the ball boys probably got more of those than I, than um, the players did. We didn't think it would be that big a deal. But anyway, um, this was one of my, one of my prized things that MJ had that he gave to me that I will always hold on to. Those are some of the coolest golf clubs I've ever seen with the Jumpman logo on there. Oh yeah. Yeah. Were, play, were you playing golf back in the day? Form. I think they're pretty. They're pretty cool. I, I need to clean them up. They still got. They still got grass in the grooves. Uh, so I've got to do a better job taking care of them. Were you playing golf at that time? 
So I started playing golf and in high school after my senior year, we had won the state championship, but California had this funky rule that you had to have so many uh, hours of physical, physical education. Uh, so he put me out on the, uh, with, in the PE class running around the track and I'm going, come on, man. I, I just won a state championship in basketball. I'm in great condition. I don't need to be out here. So the golf coach was a huge basketball fan. So if you played on the golf team, that was part of doing one of your requirements for the, for the state. So I asked him, I said, would you put me on the golf team uh, so I don't have to go out and run around the track with these, <laughs> with these guys that are, you know, <laughs> huffing and puffing, and I'm, you know, just breezing around. But uh, I just, so he said, yes. So they taught me how to, you know, hold the, my, my dad's old set of clubs at that time. They taught me how to, you know, hold the club and, and proper swing and golf etiquette and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I even got to play in a couple of the little nine-hole matches that they have. Of course, my scores were always too high and always got thrown out. I did get part, counted as part of the team. But going to the golf course, beat going to the track. That's all I think I knew. I was like, I kind of like this game. Um, and I played a little in college in the summertime. We had uh, opportunities to go out to the, the, co the, the course where the um, – the Tar Heel basketball uh, golf team played and uh, playing in the summertime out there and the rate was real good so uh, we go out and play nine holes or 18 holes in, in, the, in the summer heat but when I got to Chicago I didn't really play much golf so I was you know laser focused and plus we would play a winter sport anyway so I never got a chance to play much until MJ gave me the set of clubs and I tried to play one time with him but like I said he was so much better than I was I was still trying to remember how to you know get my stance right and blah 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 and those guys would just Everybody had a cart. They would hit tee off together, and then that was it. They would putt out and go to the next hole, and I'm still back there chipping onto the green, like looking down there going, where, where, where did it go? I couldn't keep up with these cats. So uh, I, had to, I had to say, okay, you guys go ahead. Let me go work on my game. I'll circle back to you. And plus, they play for big money, man. These guys play $10 a yard. And I, I as a rookie, I was making the minimum. I didn't have that, I didn't have that kind of money, so – it was it was uh, you know a lot of sweaty palms out there on the golf course trying to play with these cats. So you mentioned you were bitten by the golf bug in '95 when you were playing for the Sixers, and then you were at a charity event. I was I'm curious how much golf were you playing at that time before you were bitten by the golf bug, and how much did things change from that point going forward as far as golf is concerned? Yeah, not not much golf at all. Um, you know, when you go from winning a championship uh, to playing for the Sixers and you're the worst team in the league, you're constantly trying to do what you can do to uh, get the team better. Because I just, that wasn't what being a pro basketball player was about for me. I didn't like the losing, winning 18 games, uh, 24 games. That's, that's a horrible feeling, horrible. When you know the game is over by halftime, you have no chance to win. So I was really concentrated on basketball and the Sixers had this event for their Sixers charities. And um, it was at a really nice course and I had such a nice time. Uh, I just got bit by that golf bug. I love playing. I ended up joining Commonwealth National Golf Club out in Horsham, Pennsylvania and really started working on my game. Charles Barkley was a member there at one point as well. And that's when Charles had a good swing. He didn't have that's that. When Charles had a good swing. <laughs> back breaking knee, knee snapping thing that he's got now. Uh, he, he swung normal. I mean, he wasn't, you know, uh, Tony Finau, but uh, he had a, he had a nice, he had a nice swing. And 
that's why I fell in love. So I started doing a lot of summer vacations. I had more, more free time in the summer because uh, we never made the playoffs. Uh, and I would travel around the world playing, playing great courses. And one of the trips that I had, I, I started doing this basketball camp in Germany and the camp director would send me on the, like a four day weekend between the two sessions of camp to Scotland, Ireland, England, Spain. And I would play all these great courses. So I would like go play St. Andrews um, in Scotland. And then I was there one time for the British Open and bumped into a guy that played basketball in college against this guy named uh, Greg Narrett, who's working for Nike. He's like, well, you got to come back next because they're having the British Open and I can get you tickets to go to the British Open. That was when it was at Carnoustie. And so I did that and I bumped into Stuart Appleby um, who I knew through a guy I played with in Philly named Mark Bradkey. They both married sisters. So Stuart said, yeah, come on, come on. He was with the Islesworth group. And so Joe Lewis, who owned Islesworth at Hard Rock, had his yacht parked out there. It's my best experience on a golf, at a golf tournament. So we would party, party on Joe Lewis's yacht. It was parked right off the beach at St. Andrews. They had the entire road hole, like this banquet room on the 17th, like Tiger Woods, Mark O'Meara, Payne Stewart, Lee Jansen, Appleby, all just kind of hanging out. They had staff waiting on them. They're watching the tournament when they weren't playing. Lewis had his helicopter parked off the backside of the, scene at the old, old, old horse hotel, and we'd ride the helicopter from, the, from St. Andrews to Carnoustie. So I'd jump on the plane or the, the, the helicopter right over with, Appleby and then ride back with with uh, Payne Stewart and then we'd play cards and you know have some pops and stuff like that it was wonderful I was like we thought we were doing something in the NBA until you get a little taste of what these guys are doing on a PGA tour Tiger wasn't so much he was a little bit more in the hunt so he wasn't hanging out as much but I would have liked to play some cards with him but it was a great great experience and something that I'll never forget but when I was playing with those guys cards they told me about this course called old head golf links in Kinsale, Ireland. And oh, yeah. they kept talking about and raving about it. I'm like, okay, these are PGA dudes going on and on about this course. And I was like all into playing, you know, you know, some of the top courses and, and special courses. I was like, all right. So next year I told the camp director, Hey, send me to Ireland. I got to go check out this place called old head. And I don't know if you guys have had the privilege to go walk 14, the 18 holes, 14 of them along the edge of a, of the Atlantic ocean. And it's cookie cutter. It's like, Pebble Beach on steroids is the best way I can explain it, that all the holes are like on the edge of the ocean are like vertical. And the drops can be anywhere from like 175 to 450 feet. And I mean, straight down, you walk on these little narrow paths, but you can only about four feet wide on, on, on either side and they're grass. <laughs> so it's coming down, you know, that's wet. And you're just looking down over the edge like, oh boy, that's a long <laughs> way down. I don't think that ice plant's going to stop my... 300 pounds from sliding into the water uh, but it's just surreal and it's so spiritual and that's the thing I love about golf and golf courses the natural beauty the way they have incorporated the courses and the landscape with you know the you could be it doesn't matter if you're on the cliffs of Ireland or the mountains of North Carolina or the deserts of Arizona um, the, the, the marshlands in Florida you get a little bit of taste of everything I've been on a course with you know uh, elk uh, bighorn sheep, alligators, <laughs> rattlesnakes. And you, you just get a little bears, moose. It, you just, it's so special, so relaxing, so peaceful. I love it. I love the game. Um, and I think it's one that I get to share now with my friends in, um, 
my family and especially my son's getting into the game now too. So get to go out and swing the club with him. Uh, it, it's just a, a great way for somebody who's competitive, but doesn't take it too seriously, learns how to have a good time on it and enjoy the environment and the people that he's with. And, and that's why I love about the game. And you can play for forever. Yeah. Well, so I took a look. You were kind enough to share your golf memberships and it's like a murderer's row. There's a lot you of courses on there. You mentioned Commonwealth National. You also mentioned membership at Old Head, but you also have on there Silverleaf in Scottsdale. Yeah. Decent track. We've been out there a couple of times. Yep. It's super nice. Whisper Rock. Oh, yeah. Another super exclusive course. And Gaza Ranch, which is in Idaho with a phenomenal property. So I got to ask you, of all the golf courses you've played, even the ones you remember that, which course is your favorite? Well, they are, they are all special, and uh, the country clubs, especially the membership, I've met some great people. And, and um, you know, the, the club in Idaho was a place I never thought I would ever live in, um, but I went up there, and it's such a special place. It's such a special membership, membership a Discovery Land Company that, that built the course and the community up there do such a good job, and it's such a family-friendly place. Um, that's wonderful, too, because it's also got the lake club aspect, and I never had a boat, drove a boat till I owned a boat. Uh, and that's a, that's a great thing to do after the golf is done to get out on the water. So that's pretty special being at whisper rock. So many PGA professionals up there. It's probably got the lowest handicap for membership of uh, any club in the country. At least it did at one point. Uh, but the tips that those guys are give out, they're so nice. Uh, <laughs> once walked, walked up to a, to a, uh, a major championship, not knowing who he was and asked him if he wanted to play a game. And it kind of went, Oh, wait, hold on a second. Uh, I got you confused with somebody else. You go on and have a nice day. You know? like, uh, but you can do that. You go walk up and he was gracious to say, sure. You know, but you can just walk up on the range and get a game if you were by yourself. But it's a, that's a special place that they've created there. Great Trius is a, a wonderful guy who built that course alongside Phil Mickelson. So, you know, props to what they do at the rock. Um, but my favorite is, is old head because to me, uh, you're walking out on that course. There's no houses around. It's, you know, you're just huffing it. There's no carts. Uh, and you walk along those cliffs and you just lose yourself, uh, in your thoughts and the, the waves crashing on the shore and the winds blowing. And sometimes you, you know, you could play and sleep and it's cold at 50 degrees and coming down sideways and the thunder's going and you're having a great time. And you're drinking, you're drinking Guinness or uh, Murphy's, you know, a plastic cup and got hail splashing and you're drinking and just smiling and, and, and getting another time you're playing a, you know, shorts and a golf shirt. You, you just don't know what you're going to get in Ireland. And that's part of the beauty of it. But it's something spiritual about walking along those shores that just make me close to people that I've been close to in my life that I can't speak to anymore. But I just hear their voices in my head and you know, not in a crazy way, but in a good way. <laughs> uh, and it just makes me just relax and enjoy the moment. And for this, I don't think there's a better walk for four and a half hours with a golf club in your hand than, than being on this cliff at Old Head Golf Links. So you play a lot of golf, but you're still uh, pretty much involved with uh, the basketball world, correct? What are, what are some of the things you got going on right now in that space? Yeah, I've, I've, I've always loved the game. You know, I was one of these guys when I first started playing, I thought, okay, you know, if, after you play 10 years in a league, damn, if you can't go do something else, you're not very talented. But when I when I got into the league and, and made so many contacts and, and learned so much early on, 
you want to start part part you know passing that on to some of the younger players and i had the opportunity to do that after my 10th year with amari stoudemire and sean marion and uh some of the other guys that 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 went on to have nice long 12 15 18 year careers and that's special for me when i look back on now that i the things that paxton and cartwright and jordan taught me how to be a pro i was able to pass on to those guys and i hope that they did the same along the way we created something that becomes kind of a legacy in fact i went back to phoenix and there's things that i put in the in the bathroom showers like little positive messages uh in little frames you know these little five by seven frames that are still there like that's awesome. A little, little dusty, <laughs> but they're still there. And I think that's pretty cool. Like, okay, you know, I never hung a banner in Phoenix, but, you know, I, I still contributed to something that's still being passed along to the guys coming up behind me. Um, and that's like why I played so long. Uh, and after I finished playing, I, started, I got into broadcasting. And it was a way to stay around the game. I got to call the action for LeBron James, you know, a young LeBron James in just his second year. Um that was special to me. And then going back to Milwaukee, doing in Milwaukee and then in Phoenix were a place that I had played before and, and watched some of those guys in those special teams with, with Steve Nash and uh, again, Mari Stoudemire still playing and Joe Johnson, I, you know, special teams and battles that they had against the Lakers with Mike D'Antoni in the six seconds less. And that was fun. And then getting into coaching and going to the D league and coaching in Boise, Idaho and riding the bus <laughs> from Tulsa to Austin, you know, for games. And that was tough, but that was fun too. And watching guys get the call up to the NBA, you know, having a chance to do something that I did, you know, trying out and making it and seeing their dreams realized was special. So I've always enjoyed that from that aspect. And that morphed into me getting into college basketball, uh, being a broadcaster at Grand Canyon University where Dan Marley was the head coach and Jerry Colangelo, USA Basketball is part of that, that program there in the business school and the university and watching those guys rise up from, you know, 2A basketball to having to go through the probationary period to finally get eligible for the NCAA tournament. And then Marley gets replaced by Bryce Drew and then Bryce Drew in the first year takes the team and wins the tournament and gets to go to the big dance, seeing the joy in those guys those seniors that went through all that and experienced that now opportunity to do something that i had a chance to do at north carolina playing playing the big dance that's uh it's hard to put into words the special feelings that you get from watching that happen um and i get to leave it kind of vicariously through them i'm not a big part of it but i feel i'm a small part of it and i enjoy it and i'll continue to do it as long as they have me i think we would all say at least me and jay wall would say the the early 90s is probably the best era of basketball in NBA history. Um, how would you compare like back then to the current state of the NBA right now? Like, what do you think about the state of basketball? Well, I agree with you guys. <laughs> I think, I think as I get old and crusty, we all, all the old crusty guys like to think that their era was the best era of basketball. And I, but in all honesty, I think the game was played with a rhythm and a pace that made it very special. The inside out aspect of, of working the ball around, shooting higher percentages, uh, more attention to detail and trying to get stops. Uh, there's something about a score that's 100, 105 to, to, to 98 that's more appealing to me than, than 127 to 122. Um, Preach. I don't, I don't, I don't really. 
and I guess maybe I still, and I'm a little biased because I was a defensive guy and I could, could put the ball in the basket that well anyway, <laughs> but uh, I, I enjoyed trying to get stops. I think that that was something that was, that was so hard to obtain against guys that were so big, so strong, so fast. Um, my proudest moments playing in the NBA finals wasn't the points I scored or the rebounds that I had, or even the championship banners that we hung. It was, it was drawing a charge on Mac, um, on Magic Johnson as he came down the lane and blocking a shot. You know, I blocked a shot of Magic Johnson and uh, Charles Barkley and Clyde Drexler. I mean, Hall of Famers uh, drew charges on him, uh, came over, forced him into traveling, called all the little defense, I think, things that I had to try to do in the NBA, stop Akeem Elijah one, you know, not try to get killed by Shaquille O'Neal walking away with all my teeth. He's still all my teeth after playing against Shaq. Not a lot of guys I can say that, you know, you're watching, you talk about getting dunked on. I watched a Shaq dunk on uh, Jared, uh, on, on Dudley uh, uh, here recently, you know, just the power and strength it takes to try to stop a guy like that. I mean, those are the challenges that I enjoyed that I don't see play out in the NBA as much today. Uh, they're happy coming down and taking the first three that they get. I watched a seven-footer on Christmas Day shoot one from about 40 feet with 18 seconds on the shot clock and just shook my head like, that's a game I'm unfamiliar with. He missed it too, but there's like no no repercussions for that. I mean, we shot if we shot threes as a big guys in Chicago, we get fined by Phil Jackson. So, it, you know, it's just totally – Unless we made it. If we made it, we didn't get fined. But if we <laughs> missed it, we would get fined. Um, so it's just a different mindset. I still enjoy LeBron. I mean, it's the last guy I've still connected with that I played with that's still doing his thing at a very high level. Uh, and Kevin Durant's probably my favorite player. Don't tell LeBron I said that. Uh, but I, I appreciate what the guys can do. I'm not saying they're not talented. Uh, I just, to my eye, my basketball is used to something so much different that um, it's hard for me to appreciate it the way I appreciated 90s basketball. So, I've really been trying to resist asking this question. Sorry, Jay. Well, oh, here we go. Cut you off. No, I've been trying the best that I can, but you've played with so many great basketball players and against so many greats. If you were to put together like a quick little top five list, oh, who, who would be on your top five? Your that basketball is, IQ is so high, so I respect That is so hard for me this. because it's it's very different. Like we just talked about the 90s game versus today's game. And I kind of wonder what the stars that I played with in the 90s, the Patrick Ewings, the Carl Malones, the Charles Barkleys would do in today's game. Would they, would they crush it or would they struggle? Would they have to reinvent their games with the rules that they have now and guys shooting so many threes and basically can travel and – change their pivot foots and Euro steps and all these different type of things that they could do versus the way we had it back then. Or could the guys back then, could a Steph Curry be as effective the way we beat the hell out of players back, back in the day, you know, Allen Iverson managed to survive those years. So maybe, but he cut the tail into the nineties. So I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, we, we were so much more physical. The game was, you had to be stronger. I don't know too many guys, maybe Kobe Bryant and, and, and um, Durant that were able to kind of make that jump from high school to the pros, but most guys needed three, four years of college basketball just to get stronger physically to be able to handle the rigors of 82 games. We didn't have load management days, uh, you know, a hard foul nowadays that gets you ejected from a game and called a flagrant two. And we, we took hard fouls all the time. Um, it was just part of it. 
So I, I don't know. But to answer your question and give you some names, Michael Jordan's at the top of the list for me. I, I was going to leave the show because I thought for sure you'd ask me who's the goat between Michael and and LeBron. And I always would. We're not going to put you on the spot like that. <laughs> I, I always I always say Michael's the best, and I love LeBron. It's not to take anything away from him. Um, but Kim Elijah was the best center, best all-around player that I ever had to try to guard. He was the biggest challenge, even a bigger challenge than Shaquille O'Neal because we knew where Shaq was going to be. You know, he's going to post, <laughs> post that big booty down on the block, and you know, you prayed that your help arrived before he did too much damage to you. But um, uh, you know, Shaq was 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 a special player. Carl uh, Malone was. You know, bigger had 30 pounds on me, but probably could, could would would outrun outbeat me in a sprint. He was always a tough cover, and that little John Stockton always trying to free him with that cross pick always used to piss me off too. He was like, "This guy doesn't need any help. Why are you trying to you know rub, rub me off of him?" So, uh, you know, we had I had some star players that I I had to battle. Like Patrick Ewing, the centers, you know, it's kind of hard for me to start naming all the small forwards and the and the and the shooting guards. The guys I had to go against, um, the big man era of basketball kind of died in the 90s. You know, we have all these kind of two-way players, the stretch fours, the stretch fives. You know, we had big guys, big strong dudes that played down on the blocks. You know, the, the Charles Oakleys and uh, Rick Mahorns. Uh, hell, it was a hard hat and lunch pal league back then. You know, now it's a, a Gucci and Bentley league. <laughs> Gucci and so, so on this podcast, we regularly talk about the importance of getting fit for your golf clubs. And I would say that pretty accurately that you're, you're a unique case. You're 6'10", which is, is not a common height for, for most golfers that are out there playing. What, what's it like trying to find golf clubs or ha what has it been like trying to find golf clubs to fit your frame? Uh, well, everything is custom. Yeah, from, from clothes to golf clubs, we just get used to it. That's part of it. It's going to be an added expense <laughs> to try to get <laughs> have the proper equipment. And I've been very blessed. Um, I think uh, the NBA has got a very good partnership with Ping, as a matter of fact, the same clubs that these Jordans are. Um, uh, Carson Manufacturing has been wonderful for, for feeding big guys uh, in their facilities there in Arizona and uh, Phoenix. Uh, so you could go to Karsten, they'll fit you up, they'll put you through the, all, all the things, the upright lies, the, the three inches over standard. Um, those have been a big, a big help because you have to have the proper equipment or you're out there hacking. My, my swing's still a little too steep. Uh, I'd like to get it back in a little bit lower. I see myself on video and go, why am I got it up so straight? It just, it feels like it's back, but it's, you know, um, but you know, when you're practicing uh, and you're getting tips and you're getting lessons, you, you kind of figure out how to adjust to try to get that ball going straight. Uh, I'll never be able to work the ball, uh, but I can play my fade <laughs> and I can hit the occasional straight shot up with the driver. Uh, Cause that's 47, 48 inches long. Uh, and that's a big help. So, wow. It, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I have to take driver. my travel, but I got to take it out of the golf, uh, the golf bag. So it doesn't get damaged, but I'm sure. Uh, but you know, when you play, the thing that I realized early on when I was playing with clubs that were like an inch, inch and a half over standard, after, after a round of being bent over in a bad position like that and trying to stay still, it kills your back. <laughs> so you have to have the proper equipment or you, one, you're not going to perform too, plus you're going to injure yourself. 
So once I got the three inches over standard, it wasn't a shame to have these clubs sticking up so much higher than everybody else's in my golf bag. I started playing better, started enjoying the game better uh, and, be, and being less injured from it. You know, we, with a group of guys that go to Cabo on Father's Day for a long time, Ray Allen and Tony Smith, a bunch of other NBA guys, and we'd take some guys down there with us. And, you know, we play 36 holes like every other day. And when you don't have the proper equipment, you feel that in your body. But when you get fitted correctly, it's a whole different ball game for you. You enjoy the game better, you're pain-free, and uh, you score better as well. Now, listen, when you're just 6'10", a lot goes wrong when you have that club 14 feet in the air when you try to get it back to the ball. But uh, at least you give yourself a better opportunity. So the, you mentioned Ray Allen, and it makes me wonder, of all the, the former and when you were playing in the league, the, the guys you played with, who's the best golfer that you've ever played with that, oh, that, oh, from, oh. From, the, from the hoop side? Oh, I'm going to get in trouble with Michael Jordan on this one. He's going to want his clubs back. But uh, <laughs> I would have to, I'd have to say, you know, Ray, Ray's probably at the top. Um, Ray's a stick. Yep. He's a stick. And, and the other guy that I played with in Milwaukee on those teams, and we would play a lot um, in Milwaukee, uh, was Vinny Del Negro. Uh, and Vinny is a member at Wisprock as well. I played some golf without him right there. He's a lefty. He's sneaky long off the tee, this guy. Uh, pounds at a mile. He's got good hands around the green. He's got a good eye for putting. Uh, in fact, I think this year was his first year he broke through and finally won that event. Down he won the Tahoe. All the, the celebrity. celebrity. Yeah. Yep. American Century. And so, um, yeah, Vinny and Ray probably at the top of the list. MJ, I think he likes to say that he's a scratch golfer, but I'm not quite sure if he's quite there. <laughs> um, he's probably the most passionate guy about golf. In fact, I think he just built a, his own course down in Florida uh, that he plays uh, now quite a bit. But uh, nobody smokes more cigars and, and, and plays more golf than Michael Jordan. That's for sure. I'll give him that title. But I think Vin, Vinny and, and Ray give him a good run for his money on the course. You got some merchandise in the background that I'm, I'm curious about. You got a jersey and some uh... – are those newspaper clippings? Well, I don't know if you can see my shirt. It says Chapel Hill versus all y'all. I'm, I'm, you know, like MJ, I'm a, still a huge, it's Carolina family, man, until we die. Like, you know, we bleed Carolina blue after you play for the Tar Heels. So yep. I was in the, I was in my storage facility to pull out the clubs for you guys and bring them on air to show you. So I saw this old Carolina jersey. So my old number 42 Carolina jersey. That's I so had to great. grab that too and get some uh, Tar Heel time because we're excited about Carolina sports this year, especially our football team. We're ranked in the top 10. Mac Brown has brought us back, baby. So we're looking forward to what the Carolina basketball football team is going to do this year. And then Hubert Davis, my, my former teammate at North Carolina, has taken over the reins at, um, for the Hall of Famer Roy Williams, who actually coached both of us in school. Uh, well, I think Hubert missed him, but he coached me in school. He was an assistant for Dean Smith for two years, my rookie and sophomore, a freshman sophomore year at North Carolina. So he just hung up his uh, basketball uh, coaching career. Um, and now Hubert Davis has taken over. So I'm excited to see what my former teammate's going to do. Um, he's been killing it on the recruiting trail and uh, in, in the um, portal as well, bringing a lot of good players. So I had to represent the Tar Heels. And then this, I don't know if you can catch, make out this behind me, is a commemorative um, it says in, in, uh, in commemoration of your contributions to the three-peat presented by the Chicago Bulls to Scott Williams on November 6, 1993. 
and oh, it's pages of the Chicago Tribune after we won the 91, 92, and 93 uh, championships. So, like I said, I didn't hold on to as much of that stuff over the years. A lot of cousins and um, other people, charities had gotten a lot of that stuff, but that one I thought was really cool, and I have some Wheaties boxes uh, from the 91, 92, and 93 championships as well that I that are very special to me. You got to send some of these pictures over. I need to see those Wheaties boxes. That is so cool. <laughs> are you going to make me go back into that hot storage facility again? <laughs> with, with the traffic and everything in Austin. Scott, we, we can't yeah, thank right. you enough for, for your time. I got one more question for you, at least for me. Do you have any good MJ gambling stories? <laughs> well, um, one thing I will say is when we would play cards on the plane, it was the card group was basically myself, John Paxson, Stacy King, uh, Will Purdue, and occasionally BJ Armstrong was sneaking the game. Although BJ's tight as ninety nine is to a hundred with a, with a dollar bill, so he didn't play all that much. Uh, and like I said, Michael would be in the back of the plane playing with uh, Scotty Pippen, Horace Grant, and I think Cliff Levingston was was part of that. I, I would just say big money group. Okay, so every now and again, MJ would come to the front of the plane. We'd be playing you know, blackjack, either generally Paxson or somebody would be the house. Well, when MJ would come in, he'd say, I'll be the house, no limit, bet whatever makes you uncomfortable. <laughs> and I always just, always used to laugh at that. Like, oh no, you're not tempting me into <laughs> losing my paycheck. <laughs> you know, after taxes, I wasn't taking home much as a rookie. So I'd always stick with my little, you know, five and $10 blackjack hands and he'd never get me to play more than that. But uh, that always stuck with me these 30 years, some 30 years later that I'd say, no, no, MJ, you're not, you're, you just plop down his smart money. man. <laughs> you know, it'd be just, it'd be nothing but fifties and hundred dollar bills in there. And I'd just be like, wow, <laughs> for a little guy making 150 grand. I was like, that's, that, that's more than, that's about more right there than I see in three months. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, this was phenomenal, Scott. We can't thank you enough for your time. So much fun. Well, listen, guys, I'll tell you what, I'm a huge, like I said, I'm a huge fan of golf. And uh, of all these Zoom calls that I did for the last dance uh, and reminiscing with some of my teammates, those were great times. But this is a special treat for me as well. Um, I'm not telling any of my buddies I'm going to be on, on with you guys. I'm going to surprise them. So, you know, awesome. for our 30 year anniversary, kind of in the middle of COVID last year, we snuck down to Meadows of Dan, Virginia. Um, and got to play down there at Primland Golf Course, a very special place and spa down there. And we teed it up for three days. We didn't have the greatest weather, but we had a blast. And that's a great thing about golf. Um, it can bring, bring us, brought us all back together. Some got some of those guys I hadn't seen in, you know, 10 plus years. Uh, and that's the great thing about golf. So when you, when you have to let me know when this comes on so I can send them all a group text and, and, uh, and tell them that I'm going to be on with y'all. We'll send you a link. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Have a great day. And that'll do it for episode 107 of Fully Equipped. If you're looking for more gear news, you can always check us out on social media. We're at Fully Underscore Equipped on Twitter and at Fully Equipped Golf on Instagram. Appreciate you listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>